0: Father, thank you for this beautiful day, for the sunshine that uh, reminds us of the rays of your love that, that uh, pour down upon us, Lord. We know that even on the gray days that you are with us and for us, but uh, we're especially cheered this morning to gather together as your people and to study your word. And so we pray that you would bless this time together and lead us deeper into an understanding and appreciation of who you are and what you have done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, at risk of opening up a large can of worms, I introduced with this, this is research, so you know this is real. I got it from the internet. Um, Research shows that men may, uh, typo there, sorry, that uh, male motorists drive an additional 276 miles a year because they are lost and refuse to ask for directions. I'm not making this up. I really did find this. One in ten refuse to ask for help at all. All right, no guys in this room, of course, but there are other guys who are like this. So my question for you is not, uh, you know, what's a guy you know who's a total oaf like this? That's not the question. The question is, when do you ask for directions? What's your, your tipping point? When do you, how do you know that you're lost or you've, you've hit a dead end or you just, you need, you need some help? Or does it happen anymore because of the, the GPS? Yeah, David. My wife tells me. Okay, there you go. Your wife tells you. <laughs> <laughs> With the license are a different <laughs> <The last laughs> state <laughs> <a different> <laughs> Yep, that'll that's usually a dead giveaway <laughs> others of you i mean how, show of hands just let's be honest here uh like are you willing to stop and ask for directions if if need be yeah. of course. Okay. Of course. okay most of some of us not so much appreciate your honesty quick yeah, story in the philippines you you can easily get lost, obviously, and you ask for directions. It's the stupidest thing you want to do because Filipino people do not want to disappoint you in any way. Oh, no. so they will give you directions where they have any idea. Where you're going. <laughs> exactly, we'll get you somewhere. Well, what's the Cheshire Cat say? If you don't know where you're going, any pl- any road will take you there, right? <laughs> Or I liked uh, I mentioned Indiana Jones in the, the sermon today, the family we watched the last crusade this week, and young Indy at one point gets separated from the rest of the group, and he says, everybody's lost except for me. <laughs> <laughs> so that's another way to, uh, to approach that, that's a fail safe. <laughs> yeah. Well, in uh, our section on Hebrews today, we're going to be looking at the dead ends and the true paths of life that we have through the law and through our Lord Jesus, respectively. So, go to Hebrews chapter 10. We'll pick up with verse 1. Let me read the first paragraph for you. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Okay, so in these first few verses, the preacher is pointing out the limitations of the law. The limitations of the law. And number two on your handout, he he shows how the law's many and various sacrifices foreshadowed the once-for-all sacrifice. So this language has shown up earlier in, uh, in the book of Hebrews. We talked in terms of that shadow. He says it was, it was, the law was but a shadow of the good things to come. And Paul uses similar language in Colossians 2. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are but a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In this way, the preacher is showing us a really important way to read the Old Testament law, to make sense of the Old Testament law, in particular what we tend to call the ceremonial law. So all those laws about sacrifices and cleanliness and so forth. Because you read that and it's hard to know how does this apply, what does this have to do with my life as a Christian? And it's not so simple oftentimes as just doing a one-to-one kind of correlation. You know, That sort of thing is what gets us books like here's the Bible diet or something like that. And the next thing you know, you're like, I don't even know what a cloven hoof is, much less whether or not I should be eating one. And where can I get a good rock badger, right? Uh, It's like, "Eh, this is not the most helpful sort of thing. Um, But what Hebrews shows us is that the the, uh, preferred way to read the law is as a shadow that's foreshadowing the coming of Christ. In other words, to read it spiritually so that in all these many and various sacrifices, it's pointing forward to the once for all sacrifice of Jesus. And when we had our study of Leviticus, we had occasion to see this over and over again. But this is really what um, the the fancy $5 theological term for this is hermeneutics. Hermeneutics means principles of biblical interpretation. So what the preacher is giving us is a kind of hermeneutic for reading the Old Testament law, especially the Old Testament ceremonial law. He's showing and demonstrating, listen, it was a shadow it was a foreshadowing, but now the substance <clears throat> belongs to Christ. It's always pointing forward to Jesus. that makes sense? That's a really key key that unlocks a lot of the rest of the, the way that we would read the Old Testament. The uh, um, study Bible says the true, form. Mm-hmm. the true form of Christ. The true form of Christ, that's right. And so it's... It, he, Jesus is the one who's casting that shadow backwards through time, but He's the true form, the one who is creating it, causing it to be. That's right. Okay, so next about the law and the ways that it it has limitations. Number three, the law's job was to create the itch, not to scratch it. Hmm. This is the technical theological way of putting it. But the law's job was not was in, meant to engender and to create in us a sense of our own insufficiency, and if I will, are imperfection. Okay? Paul says similarly in Galatians 3, the scripture by which he means the law in that context, he's talking about the, the law, the Old Testament scripture, imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Okay? So the law's job was not, and never was, in order to justify you, to make you holy and righteous before <laughs> God. The law's principal job—not its only job—but its principal job was to lead us back to the living Lord, to create that itch that could only be scratched by Jesus, by the gospel. Okay. Uh, along these lines, I, I um, often point back to the um, a Got Milk ad, and where uh, the guy—he—in <clears throat> 30 seconds they tell this whole story. It's incredible. You get this guy, he's walking down the street, he's talking on his phone. He's like, guess what? You're fired! (laughs) And then he gets hit by a truck. (laughs) And next thing he knows, he's in this this beautiful room. And everywhere he looks around in this light-filled room, there's cookies fresh, warm, chocolate chip cookies. And he's going to town, eating all the cookies, and with his mouth full, he's like, whoa, I'm in heaven, all right. He opens up the fridge, and there's this carton after carton of milk. He's like, perfect. Then he starts going to the milk, and one after another, they're all empty. Until he finally says at the end, where am I? And then it says that they got milk with flames coming up. In Just brilliant. But this is, the law gives the cookies, but it doesn't provide the milk, right? The gospel comes in the milk. So if you look it up on YouTube, I think you can still, you can still find it. <clears throat> and then next, number four on your handout then. So the law is not a thoroughfare on the way to eternal life. It's not a throughway. okay? It's a dead end, and it was designed and intended to be a dead end. Romans 10, Paul says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law. So the law comes to this dead end whereas Jesus is the living end, see? The law is that dead end where there's nowhere else, there's no escape, there's no exit, and that's how God designed it. He consigned all to disobedience in order that he might have mercy on us through our Lord Jesus, okay? And that word uh, end there in Romans 10, Christ is the end of the law, is the Greek word telos, which is a really good, important word to know, and it's uh, pertinent to the, the theme of today's text, Everybody just notice chorus work here before I erase it. <laughs> <laughs> I tell to it's very sweet. Um, so the the word is telos, and um, in English spelled T-E-L-O-S. Okay? And telos means it can mean end, as in just the, the end of the line. Um, but it also means goal and aim and fulfillment. And the word that we had in our um, text today, our gospel, when Jesus says, you shall be perfect, it was uh, related to this. It was um, uh, tele, teleoi. Okay? So it's like the uh, adjective rather than the noun for Okay? So you shall be perfect because you are in the perfect Savior, the one who is the telos, the culmination of the law. See? The law is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So now in him, the, the law is fulfilled vicariously on your behalf. And we're able to live now freely by his spirit, following the way of the law. Tis a delightful road, as we're saying in our sending Him today. It's a delightful road because I'm set free. It's not a burden. This is what I need to do in order to be acceptable. But because I'm accepted, because I'm free, because I'm beloved, then I delight to follow in the way of God's commandments because that's where true freedom, true liberty really is. Let me pause there for reflections or questions about that. Also, the law that we receive from Moses, so all of this is external to us. right. In the law that we have now, because we are in Christ, is actually internal. It's internal. In yep. my law. It's, yes. In other words, it is my law. No, it's my heart's desire. Whereas before, I had to see it to do it. Yeah. My body would say no to it. Right. Now it's my heart's desire because it is actually in my heart. Exactly. You know? Now it's my heart's it's desire. It's parts. it's internal, not merely external coercion. Because filled by the Holy Spirit, made new. Now it's like, oh, this is what I desire to do. Now, Martin Luther would be quick to say, but we are simultaneously saint and sinner. We still have the old Adam, the old Eve hung about our necks. And so uh, this whole life long, there's going to be a struggle there. We're going to be fighting to to put to death that old sinful nature. But make no mistake, the the new nature, the the spirit is what ultimately wins. That's the, the real end of discipleship, is that we are conformed to the likeness of Christ and made perfect in him. All right, so getting then to Jesus, this is the law's replacement picked up in verses 5 through 10. And here we get some really interesting more Old Testament interpretation. He's going to bring in a text that we haven't seen yet to this point. So picking up in verse 5, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You've neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. All right, we've got some rich stuff here. First of all, not to bury the lead here, he just kind of throws it out there. When Christ came into the world, he said, you are like, well, when did he say sacrifice and offerings you have not desired? But he's quoting from the Psalms. So this is from Psalm 40. And so what the preacher is saying, and just kind of a throw off line, is who's the voice speaking in the Psalms? Jesus is. Jesus is the voice speaking in the Psalms, inspired by the Spirit, because he'll also say, just in a few verses down, the Spirit also bears witness. I mean, this is the kind of thing that as early Christians were wrestling with their understanding of who God is, they, they had to articulate the doctrine of the Trinity because texts like this make, it, uh, complete, make our understanding of God completely incoherent apart from the Trinity, a triune understanding of who God is. Because here's Jesus, here's the Father, here's the Spirit, all speaking in concert. So Christ is the voice speaking in the Psalms. This idea was first introduced to me by Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his uh, wonderful little book, Life Together. He says, The Psalter is the prayer book of Jesus Christ in the truest sense of the word. He prayed the Psalter, and now it has become his prayer for all time. Jesus Christ prays through the Psalter in his congregation. Now, this is a, a transformative way of viewing the psalms. Um, how does this change the way we pray the psalms? If you go to the psalms and you read it as the prayer of Jesus that now you and I are enabled to, to be caught up into, to eavesdrop on and to make our own prayer, how does that change the way that we pray the psalms? Well, psalms have...
1: A wide variety of, of uh, yes.
0: topics, yep. cetera, including destroy my enemies yes. and all these other things. Yep. Well, how do you deal with some of those that are, are really tough that mm-hmm. you know don't don't go for God's love or? Sure. That seem to have hearts. So Hans raises an important question. There are a lot. You read through the Psalms. They're not all Psalm twenty-three. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. There's also Psalm 137 Blessed is the one who dashes your little one upon the rocks. Oh, okay. Thus saith the Lord. Um, <laughs> there's some hard words in there. I mean, that's an extreme example. But even just um, prayers and, uh, that are offered in the Psalms where we speak of, of my righteousness. You know, you have vindicated me because of my righteousness. You know, our, our good Lutheran radar goes off like beep, 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 beep. No way. I can't say that. Bonhoeffer um, draws attention to that. His his little book, um, the Prayer Book of the Psalms, and I think, in fact, we might still have it in the book note. There's a copy of, if I'm not mistaken, Life Together, which comes... One copy left. One copy. Mm -hmm. With the Prayer Book of the Psalms, about the Psalms. So if this is a topic that interests you, pick that up afterwards. But um, Bonhoeffer makes precisely this point. He's like, you and I can't pray those prayers in good conscience, but in Christ... now. all that experience has been caught up into him. So then now in him, we can pray with a clean conscience because it's not just our prayer, but it's also the prayers of the persecuted body of Christ throughout the world. We're caught up into all of that. And it broadens it. To me, then I'm able to pray the Psalms, not just the ones that I like or the ones that are easy, but also those hard ones. Because I recognize this isn't just my words. It's the words of our Lord Jesus in the words of his whole body, the church. Does that make sense? Um, so I, I hope that kind of opens up the Psalms to you somewhat. But I don't know, if, if the Psalms are not already part of your regular prayer practice, I'd encourage you to do so. And to, um, I mean, there's great um, schedules of uh, praying the Psalms, whether it be over a month or a couple times a year, because 150 of them, and uh, I mean, it's a wonderful practice. It tutors us in the practice of prayer. Did that whole Daily Salmon for a while. You can go back and, and listen to those as well. Okay, so Christ Jesus is the voice speaking in the Psalms. What does the Psalms say? What's the purpose of it? Why does he invoke Psalm 40? He's pointing out that the purpose of the incarnation of the Son of God coming into our flesh was to fulfill God's will. He does away with the first, with those sacrifices, in order to establish the second. Behold, I've come to do your will. When we talk about God's law, this is simply what we're talking about, God's will. We hear the law of God, and that may or may not have certain connotations for you, perhaps negative connotations, law, thou shalt, negative. But when we talk about God's law, we're simply talking about God's will. And Jesus came to fulfill God's will on our behalf, for you and me. Again, Matthew 5:17. don't think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And really the key moment for this in our Lord's life and ministry is in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? And in the Garden of Gethsemane, what's Jesus' prayer? What's his prayer to the Father? Thy will be done. Thy will be done. Incidentally, the same words, the same phrase that he teaches you and me to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus himself prays that prayer to the Father Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Thy will be done. This is why he has come, in order to fulfill the Father's will on our behalf, to fulfill the law and all its demands and commands. It's all about your sermon today. Well, it, go, it goes together perfectly, right? <laughs> yeah, I promise you, I, don't, I didn't, the line right I didn't there, draw that there, up, but yes. Where he perfects us by, you know, building us up through Christ who yes. has offered us the baptism and yes. the whole Lord's Supper and all of our sacraments. Through his gifts, that's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, so this is, in verse 10, it says, By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. More on that in just a moment. But suffice it to say, number seven on your handout, the gift of Christ's body provides the cessation of sacrifices and source of our sanctity. I got on a little bit of an alliterative kick there, I guess. The cessation of sacrifices and the source of our sanctity. That the sacrifices now have been completed in Jesus. And um, our study in in Hebrews inspired the series that we're going to do in our, our Lent midweek which I've entitled Once, Once. And we're going to go deeper into this theme of, of once for all and the, the, how Jesus has done this onceness that continues to avail for us. Because there's so much here, I need a whole season in order to unpack it more fully. <laughs> all right, let's move on then to uh, the finished and ongoing work in verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. All right, this is fun. The preacher gives us a theology of posture here, okay? Theology of posture. We talked about the the posture of discipleship a couple weeks ago, right? But I feel so bad to erase all those beautiful hearts. It must be good. Okay. So, what's the first posture that he mentions of priests? What's their posture? Standing. Standing. Very good. So, the, the priest, he says, they are standing. And why are they standing? They're standing at that posture of an unfinished work. It's still going. One stands who's still got more work to do, okay? And so in this case, when he's talking about those Old Testament priests, they're still standing because, dang,